Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the mayor speaks out again on the cancellation of LRT. SNC-Lavalin pleads guilty. Where does that leave the prime minister? And Donald Trump is impeached. Does it matter? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, yesterday, Mayor Fred Eisenberger released confidential cost estimates, or were, I guess, uh, for the LRT project that were provided by the Ontario governments. Those uh, those estimates were used to justify killing the project. To talk more about all of this, Mayor City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, and he is with us now. Fred, thanks for taking the time. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Always good to be here. Uh, Fred, so the releasing of the documents, which were the numbers that the government brought you uh, estim- of their estimated cost of the LRT, mm-hmm. why release those yesterday? Well, they uh, they confirmed to me uh, a day ago or so that uh, they had uh, told the bidders that they were uh, no longer in a bidding process, so there was no reason to uh, maintain that confidentiality anymore. Uh, you know, we, we were protecting the the, uh, the integrity of the uh, the competitive bidding process, uh, that bidding process is over, so there's no reason to hold on to those documents anymore. And I think those documents, quite frankly, are enlightening because it really really demonstrates the kind of uh, crazy math that they put together to try and come up with these uh, these numbers. And that was the issue that we were dealing with uh, right from the very beginning, and that didn't change even up until uh, last Thursday. So this was the information that was discussed at that infamous meeting way back when, September 26, that uh, no. you did not release. No, 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 no. no, no. There, 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 there was a previous one. So there's two two elements of this one. One was a short document that uh, just pr- that, uh, d- provided high numbers. It was essentially a one-pager. Right. Uh, the second document, uh, four or five pages with some more details, was the one that we dealt with uh this just this past that was the december that was the december 12th no correct correct okay now okay sorry about that you give me all my dates i know no no yeah that's no i'm using the date i'm using the dates for my own reference fred no that's okay the 12th was last thursday then that's the date and then so this was the final set of 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 numbers that you received right and they're and they're very limited in in scope uh you know you would think that uh, if they're doing an assessment uh, the assessment would would get much more detailed than that and they've really conflated a lot of numbers to really inflate the overall number so they included the city's operating and uh, maintenance uh, uh, agreement uh, into the over, their, their cost for the project mm-hmm. which uh, was never their cost to bear and that was always on the on the uh, the local taxpayers dime uh, they've included, uh, you know, financing costs in the capital construction portion, which uh, is is beyond my understanding. That was never the case. So they've they've really tagged in a lot of numbers here that uh, were never part of the uh, the original proposal and and, and equation, and to rationalize and justify what what you know what they ended up doing, which is uh, canceling this project. Everyone has questions on this, these numbers. I can tell you uh, for a good reason. Uh, we had questions as well, and that's why we never took it to the next level because we weren't, weren't confident these numbers were real. Uh, why? Why would the government cancel this project if they're if they insist they're going to give Hamilton the one billion dollars for other transit projects anyway? What's what's in it for them? Well, they're avoiding uh, the the life cycle costs that are significantly more than just the capital costs. So uh, every project, like here Ontario or Ottawa or Kitchener Waterloo, have a have a capital component. 
They have a, a, a life cycle component, which is the financing and maintenance of the vehicle, and maintenance of the structure that you put into place for the life of the contract, which is 30 years. And it has a day-to-day operations and uh, maintenance uh, agreement that the city was uh, going to be taking on. All of those projects have the same costing structure. The province had uh, committed not only to the billion dollars, but also to the 30, uh, 30-year Right. Life cycle cost as part of their financing. So that's the part that they, they bailed. They were, that's the part that they, they bailed gonna, on. Is the thirty is the uh, the lifetime agreement to keep this thing running? They they bailed on you know potentially the additional capital. We would never know what that uh, what not, that number is. We never got to the end of the uh, procurement process. Only three months away. But uh, they're uh, they're bailing on whatever the additional cost might have been on the capital side. We'll, we'll own that and the the uh, the ongoing opera uh, life cycle costs that uh, that were part of the project over the next thirty years. So they've uh, they've basically uh, tried to t- tried to suggest that this project was only a billion dollars. It was never only a billion dollars. They they own the project as a province through Metrolinx, and so the owner of the project of the facility gets to look after the life cycle of the uh, the cost to actually put that facility in place. That is not news. That is not uh, different than what's happening in Kitchener-Waterloo or in Ottawa or Toronto or in your Ontario, quite frankly, where the project came in uh, $300 million over budget. So uh, rather than 1.3, it was 1.6 million in capital. But the overall project cost for the life cycle of that project uh, is $4.6 billion over the 30 years that uh, that project would be in existence and financed. Um, most cities, when they're going through this process, we've heard a third, a third, a third, a third from the city, a third from the municipality, and a third from mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the province feds uh, all the way through. Right. Uh, after getting $1 billion to, to pay for, uh, you know, as a down payment on all of this sort of thing, is it wrong mm-hmm. to assume, unrealistic to expect them to... Uh, to maintain operating costs as well. Did we ask for too much? Well, we, we, we committed to maintaining the operating costs. So let's let's get our terms right here. Life cycle costs is not the same as... Sorry, life cycle. Costs. I'm sorry, life cycle, Fred. So life cycle costs, uh, you know, that, that was... Uh, if they're going to own the project, they can't, they can't lay the life cycle costs on the municipality. We, right. We've said all along that we are responsible and will be responsible for operating and maintenance on a day-to-day basis. I think the uh, the trust was that the city was going to, uh, at some point, be the operator of the uh, facility. So on a day-to-day basis, we would make sure that the uh, the lines were clean and that the vehicles were clean, that they get proper uh, maintenance so that uh, people that are using them, uh, you know, step into a clean vehicle every day, and that we have drivers that uh, that uh, you know run run the vehicles from one end to the other. The the life cycle cost comes into the actual infrastructure that's right. put into the ground. That's what the uh, the province had uh, committed to in the previous government. Uh, that this government would have known that, that these life cycle costs existed not only in Hamilton but in your Ontario. The project that they just finished approving uh, in Kitchener Waterloo that they've contributed to in Ottawa that is now working on their second line uh, and in Toronto in terms of the uh, the subway lines that are you know uh, amounting to some twenty eight billion dollars of uh, of transit expenditures funded by the province. All of those have life cycle costs, and all of those, if they're owned by the province, would be covered by the province. Uh, again, I come back to the third, the third, the third, and the billion dollars up front, because the whole thing with sealing this deal way back when was it would not cost the city, it would not cost taxpayers. Without any skin in the game, were we naive to think we could see this all the way through? 
Well, no, uh, you know, it's uh, by virtue of, uh, you know, we, we the previous government were was fully committed to the program that uh, that has been laid out, uh, you know, it, it, that, that we just talked about. So they were fully committed to taking on the life cycle cost and fully committed to the, the, the capital cost. They had capped it at a billion with an escalator built into it. So the original announcement was in 2014 dollars. Uh, they said there's a... Uh, a, uh, an inflationary escalator built into this. So today's dollars would probably be $1.3 billion. Uh, what everybody forgets about, though, is that even though these numbers sound staggering, the return on investment is uh, not only in revenues on the system itself, but in the development that comes with it for the city yeah. of Hamilton along the corridor. That's, that's where the big win is for the city of Hamilton, and that adds up to millions, uh, billions and billions of dollars of uh, development along the corridor, higher density development on infrastructure that already exists. Uh, that's where the big win is for the city of Hamilton, and that's where the big return is that uh, that this investment will actually generate. So is is this dead? Is it gone? Is it over? Um, where are the feds on this? Is there any is there any way this can be saved? Well, you can rest assured, uh, without giving you any specifics, that I'm not finished with it. Uh, many people in our community that have had an interest in this are not finished with it. Uh, I previously had conversations with the federal government, who has always, always express, expressed an interest in uh, uh, covering, uh, you know, any overages that might that might occur, because they've certainly invested in a lot of the projects that are uh, happening across the uh, the province of Ontario, and in fact across the country. So there's been an openness to that. It's too bad that we were never able to get to the end of the procurement process yeah. so that we could then know what the numbers would be and then start those conversations with all the partners to, to rationalize how we're going to make this thing work. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, a betrayal of the city of Hamilton. I'll say it again. Uh, but unfortunately, or fortunately, we still have uh, you know, active participants that are, very, very committed to uh, to seeing this project through, including the development community uh, that uh, you know put a lot of uh, lot of uh, skin in this game to uh, you know purchase property ready for the LRT and uh, and the development regime that comes with it. And so uh, it's not over yet, and I'm determined to see it through to as far as I can take it. And if I can get it to uh, get it back on track, I'll do everything I can to do that. You know, it's uh, from the government standpoint, uh, Mayor Fred, uh, do you, the fact that this, this is such a divided issue throughout the city, it's as if some are happy, some are sad. Does that make mm-hmm. this more difficult for you? Because it's opened that can of worms again. There's there, there's people that, you know, that send me notes that are siding uh, with the government and said, you know, we can't afford it for all those reasons we all know and, and missing the points that you've just made. Uh, so So how does that play into all of this? Well, look, I mean, we, we had an election not too long ago, about a year ago, and, uh, you know, this was central to the election. And, uh, you know, uh, 70,000 70, people voted uh, for the candidate that supported LRT. Uh, that was a pretty strong statement from the community at large to say uh, we many, many more people support it rather than people that are against it. I can't satisfy everybody on any on any issue, quite frankly, let alone this one. This has been a high-profile one, but we're doing it for all the right reasons. And uh, many, many people understand the long-term benefits of having a fixed rail corridor through our city that will you know, not be affected by congestion in the future, that will run for 30 minutes from Eastgate to McMaster today and 30 years from now and 60 years from now. doesn't matter what happens to the rest of the congestion or traffic issues. 
Uh, that's a that's a transportation benefit that should not be ignored. But added to that comes that uh, that wonderful thing about density and investment that uh, generates more tax dollars for the city citizens of Hamilton. So not only do we get more housing and more housing on infrastructure that already exists, but we get more tax revenue. That doesn't that doesn't necessarily exist with other transit options. Certainly doesn't exist with bus. Uh, Possibly uh, a bit more with uh, with bus rapid transit, but the big win comes when you have a fixed rail that people can count on and developers can count on that will then generate higher density and more tax revenue for the citizens of Hamilton. So if you're in Flamborough, you would want this project to happen because it certainly helps offset any future tax increases that you're going to have to bear. Um, uh, so you're not ruling out working and talking to the federal government on this. You're uh, obviously keeping cards close to the chest at this point, but there are, there is some sort of chatter going on about this? There, there definitely is, uh, and I'm, I've had conversations, and I continue to have conversations with our federal partners, and uh, we will we'll continue to meet with uh, local interested parties, and we'll continue to work towards how we can salvage something positive out of this uh, how can we make honey out of this vinegar we've been delivered? Uh, what about the provincial government? Heard anything from them recently? I uh, have not, uh, but uh, they'll they'll be hearing from us, uh, you know, uh, soon. But we we've got some uh, some organizing to do, and uh, I will continue to reach out. Uh, you know, I I did ma- was made aware that uh, the minister has kind of alluded to the fact that they've worked closely with uh, the city of Hamilton. That's uh, that's not even close to being true. They just dropped numbers on us and and, uh, and 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 intimated all the way through this process that they wanted to protect the integrity of the procurement process, which uh, I I totally agree with. That is uh, something that ought to be sacrosanct, and we should have gotten to the end of the RFP process. Uh, that was our message to them all the way through. Uh, they decided uh, in a very short period of time to actually end that and uh, and and deliver a uh, you know a bad news story just before Christmas to the citizens of Hamilton. Uh, it was not a wise choice on their part. I think uh, they're going to they're, they're up for a lot of scrutiny in terms of the numbers they're throwing around. Rightfully so. We ask those questions. Many other people are asking those questions as they should. But we're going to continue to work with all of our partners to see if we can salvage the uh, the big win, which is LRT. What direction does the task force go in? Does it keep pushing LRT, or is it looking for other projects? Uh, I I don't even know anything about a task force. So. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, this has been such a badly handled uh, announcement, first yeah, of all. Yeah. Uh, disorganized, uh, certainly uh, thrown together at the last minute for whatever reason. Uh, you know, not being willing to uh, you know stand up for your convictions in front of a community that you're giving bad news to. Uh, you know, not understanding the, uh, the overall impact that people were going to assess the numbers. They were just going to take it for, for granted that, you know, what you're telling us is accurate and true. Uh, so they're in for a whole lot of scrutiny and, you know, skulking out the back door of uh, one location because you don't want to face a community. And then doing it again a second time uh, is just, you know, you couldn't handle it any worse than what this government uh, has, has done and when they've done it. So, uh, you know what, they'll have to answer for all of that. Uh, what, what we need to answer for is how can we uh, continue to work with all of our partners to ensure that uh, we, we get the win that Hamilton deserves. Other communities are getting this money. Uh, you know, I've said all along, okay, we, we may not get it. Then it'll end up in Ottawa or it'll end up in, in – and I don't begrudge any of them for getting this money, but they're all getting it. Uh, your Ontario is moving forward, and it's a $4.5 billion project. 
Not any different than Hamilton, and uh, it is not being canceled uh, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it was just confirmed not too long ago. And the whole thing was closed, and it, all the agreements were signed off on. Hamilton is no different. So what are we, chopped liver, or do we deserve what other communities deserve? Mayor for the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Talk to you soon, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking uh, in regard to the SNC-Lavalin case and them pleading guilty, where that leaves the prime minister. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who obviously was front and center in all of this, she was being pressured as attorney general. She has been named Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year to talk about this whole mess with a big bow on it. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you still on the rock? No, I'm back in Ottawa and I'm Christmas shopping, Scott, because, you know, we have to do that sometimes. Uh, hey, you're I'm way too early. You. Come on. <laughs> wait another. You got wait till after the weekend. You got lots yeah, of time. Well, I was going to buy Jody Wilson-Raybould some new stuff for her her office, but she moved, Scott. So, <laughs> damn it. You know, I have to give that all back. Now. Well, well, she might be downsizing. Probably doesn't have the room anyway, right? You don't, exactly. you don't have room for extra trinkets now that you're an independent. You don't get the yeah, big I, suite that you have when you're AG. Well, but maybe you get uh, maybe you get a Christmas card uh, from uh, from SNC. Though probably not, because uh, they're still likely not very happy with her. But I think, look, she getting newsmaker there that makes sense. Um, yeah, we talked came, about this story for an awful long time. Yeah, she changed the trajectory of of, of the government. Uh, their first big scandal, and they nearly got defeated in part because of all of this and the court ruling or the 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 judgment the 200 and what is it 80 million dollars in the probation probably the best outcome now snc could have besides a deferred prosecution agreement so everybody in this saga is probably a little relieved though uh, i gather justin trudeau when asked in his year one of his year-end interviews about this it said well, I probably could have done some things differently. No kidding, Prime Minister. Hmm. So uh, in regard to all of that and how it has played out, my my first question was if they virtually got the same sort of thing, that being SNC-Lavalin, as they would have had with a deferred prosecution agreement, although many will debate that, why not just plead guilty in the first place rather than trying to pressure the Prime Minister's office into a deferred prosecution agreement? Well, they probably didn't want to pay the $280 million, right? Hmm. Uh, It's not an insignificant sum, uh, and, and, and clearly... Uh, and will have some impact on them. Uh, who knows what they actually spent with the lobbying and, and all the other work that was undertaken to change people's minds. But uh, I guess the advice they were probably given from numerous people was try all manner of uh, routes that you can to make sure that SNC can still build, bid on federal uh, contracts and other uh, public contracts. And they got that in the end. So maybe they make up that 280 fairly quickly when they get some new work. Uh, how does this all look for the prime minister? Uh, I, 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 well, I, as I say, in one respect, I suspect he's breathing a sigh of relief, as is David Lametti, because you and I have talked about this before. Lametti, of course, the, the justice minister, mm-hmm. doesn't have to worry about making his decision on a DPA because uh, SNC and, and the, the prosecutors have already made a decision. So that's off the table. So that's one political problem away. But it still leaves a stink, I think, um, with uh on Justin Trudeau, um, but it's it's now moving behind him, uh, and that again for him is probably a good thing. Uh, what about Jody Wilson-Raybould in all of this? Uh, is she exonerated? 
Uh, well, I, I believe she tweeted out, uh, you know, 2019 began, I'm paraphrasing, began with, with controversy and a challenge to rule of law and rule of law. Again, paraphrasing has won out in the end. I, I think she still looks uh, like the person with the most integrity in all of this. Uh, I think she and Jane Kilpock can say, see, look, we did, we did stand up and maybe what we did helped remove some of the political pressure and, and go uh, go the legal route that that's what we wanted all along. So, yeah, I, I think she still looks pretty good uh, now that this, this decision has been made. And she still has a job, unlike Jane Philpott, uh, mm. who I'm sure will be employed, she's an eminently employable person, but she's still a parliamentarian. And maybe she looks at what new roles uh, she decides to take on, that being Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, obviously, a minority government right now. Is this over? Is it done? Is it done? How does this play out when everybody gets back after Christmas? Well, I mean, I'm going to be looking forward to Andrew Shear, whose credibility has been significantly shocked, questioning Justin Trudeau on, you know, public money and how people have behaved. Um, <laughs> That that's going to be an interesting spectacle. Ah, look, I think it'll come back in the news. Uh, the Conservatives aren't going to move away, nor are the NDP and the Bloc, from pointing out where the Prime Minister's made bad decisions and where there might be uh, some so-called nefarious behavior uh, kicking around. But I, I, don't, I don't know how much there's left in the SNC can. As we saw, you'll remember this, towards the end of the summer, this thing was, was wearing out. Um, and, uh, and now there aren't really new twists other than, yeah, SNC were guilty. And I suppose the nastiest of conservatives will say, see, look, the liberals just want to do business with bad people. But that's been a theme in time immemorial from conservatives attacking liberals. They'll just change the, the company name or the individual's name to suit the mm. story of the day. Uh, further proof that they should have replaced, the conservatives should have replaced uh, Andrew Shear with an interim leader but, um, while all this uh, leadership stuff's going on, so they can have a clean slate when it comes to this sort of thing? I, I mean, I firmly believe so. I've written as much uh, and actually got lots of positive feedback on it. Nobody's threatened to lynch me or burn me at the stake or do anything terrible like that, not even <laughs> Donald Trump. But, uh, yeah, look, I think uh, Shear is, if you want to turn the page of a book, you can't turn the page of the book when the same page is glued firmly on the cover. Um, I just think if the Conservatives do want to start to rebuild who they are and their offering to the public, they're delaying the inevitable by having Andrew Shear lead them in Parliament and get all of the coverage that comes with that. Uh, this, as you, we we talked about this endlessly. It, I, I think it was daily for weeks uh, when this whole thing was going on. Obviously, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Newsperson of the Year, Newsmaker of the Year. Um, how does the public react to this sort of thing that happened yesterday? Still as interested? Still w- want to follow up on this? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think she's seen as a more um, uh, respectable figure in, in Canadian political life and and maybe that's what cp were looking at doing given everybody else is often derided to a large degree i mean it's a strange choice in some way because i think the the sleeper people of the year i don't think it's one person or Kovrig and spavro the two michaels right good point um think about that Uh, we've gone through an election when we've a lot's happened in the last year and these guys are still in detention in china two canadian citizens for over a year uh, that that's a real issue. Those are two human lives, right? That, that I don't. So I I wonder how they fit in consideration around newsmakers of the year. 
That's a valid point. Are they not simply because this got more attention, because the government uh, was forced into this? They're sort of, um, it appears, I'm sure they're doing a lot behind the scenes. It appears, though, that those two Michaels are on hold at this point. Yeah, but and again, just think about what I think we've all normalized it so much. Two Canadians, yeah. uh, form, one a former diplomat, in jail in China and for unknown charges or charges that appear to be cocked up, I should say, and can't that can't move them. Uh, that's a story that sadly continues to give, and one that speaks to the challenges we have in the bigger world. Uh, around dealing with China and the like, SNCs, those things will come and go. But the, the, this one is the one that's going to be lasting and sustaining because of what it speaks to, at least in my, from my perspective. Uh, again, how does that play next year once uh, the House resumes and everybody gets back and we're in a minority scenario? Talk a little bit about the Prime Minister's yeah. performance and what he has to do moving forward. Because, again, we saw the situation uh, that happened at, at Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Uh, he looked pretty sheepish talking about the SNC-Lavalin situation. He's obviously going to get more pressure on all of this once he gets back to work. Uh, what does he have to do moving forward to uh, to put the sunny ways back into this? <laughs> Don't behave like a frat boy, <clears throat> as you said, at Buckingham Palace and try for the laughs with all your buddies. Uh, I, I think also he's he's got to continue to do what he was trying to do before that happened, which is Put the spotlight on other competent people in your government. Uh, he's done that with Freeland. Stand back a little bit. Uh, prime ministers who have long tenures, and you can look at Kretschmer and, and uh, Mr. Harper to a certain degree, and, and Brian Mulroney for a little while, figure out that you don't have to be front and center all of the time, and you should let other leaders emerge, and that will help you politically. So he can, does he have the discipline to do that? And when is he going to come up with some achievements? I mean, that hokey um, definition he gave to breakfast television of middle class, what the middle class is, you know what it is. I mean, my God, come on, Prime Minister. Uh, enough of the gimmicks and enough of that that nonsense. Um, so I think he's got to show some, some some more substance and also remove himself from the constant spotlight. Uh, getting back to the situation about the minister of the middle class and such, um, you know, I've often said that he's using that more for himself than others because we all know yep. who we are, sort of speak. Uh, he's the one that seems to have a difficulty identifying who, who the middle class is, uh, although everybody's trying to join it, I guess. Um, how is the public not past this enough that they're, they they can see when you know middle class uh, minister? Like my goodness, what? Is, <laughs> Well, apparently when, when we're trying to change the packaging, does this fly? Well, only if it has its desired intention. So I believe what Trudeau is trying to say is, you know what, you guys, I don't want to play people off people. You grade yourself, determine where you fit. And how you grade me is have I enriched your life. So as opposed to saying, you know, middle class income starts at $50,000 and ends at $150,000, uh, your debt level is, you know, whatever your debt level is. He's saying, we're, we all look at our, it's very liberal, right? It's very Justin Trudeau. It's how you feel about it. I'm going to feel for you and I'm going to try to make things better for you. So I'm not just focusing on, uh, the 15 million people who are between 50 and 150,000. I'm looking after all of you. And if you feel better, I'll feel better and you'll vote for me. 
call me cynical, Scott, but that's what I believe. And no, and and we've talked about this many times. He's preaching a feeling rather than policy, and I yep. think I think his fans have gone beyond that. We I think fans want to see substance. Fans want uh, fans want to see supporters. I shouldn't say fans. I'm talking like he's a rock star. Supporters want to see more beyond the packaging. And and I think when he comes out with language like this, it just makes you shake your head. Because he's does. talking about stuff as opposed to the stuff that affects the middle class that we talk about around the supper table. Yeah, so then he put, <clears throat> excuse me, point to something like his middle class tax cut, which actually, ironically, has gone up higher to people under two hundred thousand uh, bucks, just under two hundred uh, or at two hundred. Uh, so he's putting more people in the middle class, if that's his definition of it. I think where he's going to get graded on policy, to be honest with you, is less on this because people already think he doesn't know too much on it, but they believe he has some commitment to the environment. Um, and if he really wants to be brave and bold, he's got a year and a half to do that, right? And uh, come forward with a, a, enacting real greenhouse gas uh, regulations that are going to meet Paris targets and do things like that. I think he has latitude and can win on that. Whether he has the fortitude to do it uh, while he's dealing with all of the challenges in the West and from my province of Newfoundland and Labrador that needs oil resources, uh, that is a TBC. All right, can't let you go without asking you about uh, the news in regard to Ronna Ambrose. It seems uh, latest polling puts her at the front, even though she hasn't uh, officially, and, and is, I, I understand it's going to be a very difficult decision. She's formed quite a life for herself outside of politics. Your thoughts on her being the front runner without really being a candidate yet? Yeah, you make a good point. She's already given over a decade, right, to public service and is enjoying her life. But I, I think it speaks to the desire in the party to have um, the Conservative Party to have a, a leader who is very different from Stephen Harper and from uh, from Andrew Scheer in both uh, both appearance, style, and tone. Rana is more uh, much more progressive on a number of, of different fronts, uh, but also seen as a fiscal conservative. So I think it, it speaks to what conservatives are looking for and hoping for. And Rhonda Rana, excuse me, right now is the vessel of of that expression do you think she'll jump on board <sighs> i've known and, her and, for and, a long... and, and is she the best one do you think i think she'd be very good i've known her for a long time she's a personal friend uh i know how tough this must be for her because she does believe in public service but um she's given a lot already and she is very happy in private life i saw her at a, at a public policy forum dinner in april scott in toronto and i said are you missing it at all? And without missing a beat, she said, not at all. I'm very happy. <laughs> so does she want to upend her life? I don't know. Uh, it must be tough with so many pressuring her to jump on board. It is, but ultimately you have to be ruthlessly selfish, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, because if you're not, everybody else has different intentions and aspirations through you. It has to be about you and it has to be about your family and today you're loved and adored. The moment, I think Robin Urbeck wrote this in the Globe and Mail yesterday, and she's bang on, the moment you become a candidate, all of the fawning and flattery stops, and you become a candidate, and you go through what Andrew Shear went through, right? And that's, so, that's tough. So as the interim leader, not really a good example of what a leader faces? Uh, no, not really. An, an interim leader is, uh, it's like a part-time radio host. Scott, it's like if I went in there and you, people would be nice to me and they'd say, you're great, Tim, but we really want Scott back and you didn't really get a rough ride. It's, 
you know, you're, you're, you're liked. You don't have to make too many dramatic decisions, but you can do a lot of positive branding things. And, and Rana did that with, with great aplomb. Uh, so uh, what about those that would just go up to her and say, hey, come on, it's only four years. Do it. <laughs> it's four years yeah, of your life. Well, she's a young, she's a young woman. Yeah. Four years of your life. Uh, so that would make it on nearly 20 years in public service or 16 <laughs> years in public service. That that takes a lot of time off your life. Show me a politician who has looked younger, more invigorated, and feels great and is healthy after leaving public service. And, Scott, I'll tell you, you're showing me a mirage if you find that person. You're absolutely correct. And you know what? We don't pay enough respect to those that who do give their time for public service, and kudos to those that do. Uh, Tim Power has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you, Scott. If we don't talk, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, uh, always uh, to everybody and to the people of Hamilton, uh, Ashiwiwi, Ashiwa, whatever that <laughs> thing is. There you go. Thanks for all your help this year, Tim. Appreciate it. Okay, buddy. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Speaking of divisiveness, all you have to do is look south of the border. Uh, Donald Trump has been impeached as of yesterday. To talk more about all of this, Aaron Ettinger is with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and on the line now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Uh, Donald Trump impeached yesterday. Uh, mixed opinion on this. The, the, the country south of the border, uh, pretty evenly divided on all of this. Um, is this political theater or is this all warranted? Uh, this is actually quite important This is and, and very very much warranted. Uh, the theatrics of it is, uh, is something that we've basically come to expect here. But I really think that the unprecedented nature of an impeachment Mark something, you know, categorically different here. Right? It takes a lot to get for a uh, House of Representatives to bring a president to this point. It's only happened two other times in history with the threat looming over Richard Nixon, of course, in the 1970s. But this time it's different. Will it happen more frequently as a result? Uh, Repub- and I'm playing devil's advocate here. Republicans mm-hmm. are saying that uh, this is a tool that shouldn't have been brought out of the toolbox at this time. Will we see more of this as a result? Uh, I would anticipate, yes, seeing a little bit more of this as a result. Or they're more prepared to go to that tool more often or threaten to use that tool more often. I mean, if you look back since Nixon in 1974, to Bill Clinton in 1998, that's 20-odd years, to Donald Trump right now, 21 years. It's almost cyclical at this point. It's almost about once in a generation this impeachment tool comes out. Of course, the big difference is that the degree of partisanship today is so much more extreme than it was even 20 years ago under Bill Clinton. So it's very, very possible that this becomes more normalized as part of American political, you know, political intercourse. Um, one commentator uh, spoke and said that uh, this will create a vindictive streak in, in Trump. Will he come back and try to do some sort of damage to the, uh, to the Democrats on this? Oh, my goodness, yes. You could already get a sense of how he's going to hit back. You know, he prides himself on you know, hitting back every time someone throws a punch at him. Just the language that's been tossed out in the last yeah. 24 hours regarding this. We're, he's using terms like, this is war, this is a coup d'etat, this is a disenfranchisement. This is, this is 
pretty extreme language. I don't know how much more intense you can get than that within American political discourse. It's really, it's really quite remarkable. So, you know, we're seeing him mobilize this extreme terminology in order to fundraise for, you know, the coming presidential election season. Uh, I can only anticipate that he is going to you know, bring the heavy on everybody who comes at him this way. Apparently, uh, they did uh, power up the old fundraising arm when all of this happened in order and use that as an excuse to, you know, we need the money, we got to fight this. Uh, you talked about the language that was used, whether whether it's tweets or what have you, um, whether you support him or not, and we all certainly know that both of those camps are, whether you're for or against, are, are, are dug down pretty deep. Um, are, are they dug in so deep, though, that they whether it's right or wrong, whether you buy in or you don't buy in, people are just saying this is wrong. Uh, I, certainly on the Democratic side of the equation, there are compelling arguments that that what he did was wrong, for sure, that his actions were impeachable and, and, and removable. I find myself on that side of the equation, too. I think the, his uh, actions towards Ukraine were entirely impeachable and probably worth, uh, probably worth convicting upon. Um, with regards to uh, you know, with, with with regards to the arguments about whether or not the actual impeachment process is right or wrong, uh, it, it is an inherently political question here. I think, however, the Democrats did a very interesting job here, and a quite a good job, keeping the articles of impeachment quite narrow to the obstruction charge and yeah. to the abuse of power charge. There were calls to broaden the impeachment proceedings to include all sorts of other uh, other issues that are more, much more political, uh, but they were wise to keep it narrow because it, it's not against the law. It's not unconstitutional to be bad at your job. It is, however, unconstitutional to abuse power and obstruct justice in that way. So, so in that regard, uh, the impeachment proceedings do have a you know, substantive foundation and also a reasonable foundation for going forward, at least from the Democratic side of the equation. The Republican side uh, has rejected everything from the start uh, within this sort of all-or-nothing effort to defend the president, even at the cost of you know, rationality at times. Uh, everybody predicts that this will all uh, end in the Senate, that he'll be exonerated in the Senate. How will this impeachment hang over him with the Senate basically giving him a pass? Does this help or hurt at the end of the day as they approach an election? I suspect it's going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt too much. Uh, and I say that because, you know, his his base, his 30 to 35 percent of the electorate base, they're not going to move. They're just going to dig in deeper and support him with, you know, a fuller, fuller voice. The flip side, the anti-Trump types are also not going to be swayed. So there's that, that sliver of about 10 percent of the electorate somewhere in the middle that has to be persuaded one way or another. They're going to decide what happens in November 2020. I suspect, however, that they've already factored all of this stuff into their consideration. They've already costed this stuff in. They already know that he is who he is, but those kind of undecided moderates are more interested in seeing what the outcomes are of ordinary policymaking. You know, will the uh, USMCA, the new NAFTA deal, come through and will it you know, have an, a positive or negative effect on things? They're not necessarily interested in the, in the, the high drama of the impeachment trial. They're more interested in, you know, as, as they say, in the pocketbook issues. 
Uh, now Nancy Pelosi's uh, taking her time to, I guess, file this. I'm not sure of the exact process. Perhaps you could you could help us with that, understand that. Um, and Mitch McConnell upset, basically saying, hey, you've started this. Bring it on, bring it on. She's delaying it. Uh, reasoning behind that. And does that play uh, into the Democrats' favor if the other side's saying, you guys are just, you know, you're dinking around here. You're just fooling around. You, you, yeah, you, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're right to say that, that uh, the... All this kind of inside baseball stuff, the technical aspects of how to proceed and how the trial is going to go, that is that is very inside baseball. That the you know the median voter doesn't really understand or doesn't care about and has no interest in learning the you know the, the parliamentary procedures of U.S. Congress. Nancy Pelosi has is talking openly about or considering withholding the impeachment charges from the Senate as a way to force the Senate trial to bring forth more witnesses, right? And they want to do that because the Democrats want that because they want witnesses to testify under oath such that they can be cross-examined so that they might be able to, the Democrats might be able to extract from them more damaging politically information or criminally uh, criminally damaging information from those uh, potential witnesses. So, you know, it does look like shenanigans from the outside, but there is a really interesting reason for doing so. Here's the problem, right? He's going to be acquitted by the Senate. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, right? But however, if you are interested in getting at, you know, the truth of the matter, I think there is good reason to call forth more witnesses. Politically, will it damage him in the end? Maybe a little bit more, but he's going to get off by the end of January or early February. And now it's just a matter of how much personal damage does he take going into the uh, the spring season. Nancy Pelosi said that she's not moving forward until all of this seems more fair. Uh, Mitch McConnell has come right out and said, fair isn't the issue here. I'm on Donald Trump's side. Uh, is it is it rich to say that considering what we've just been through in the House? And that's what the Republicans have been saying. So it's one it's it was one one side's turn. Now it's the other. Like, oh my goodness! This is like you know watching a watching a basketball game, yeah. and the teams are deciding which rules to play on, and everybody wants to determine you know the rules that are going to support their own side. Like, this is this is this is a remarkably ramshackle process, with the rules being made up only a couple of days or weeks in advance of when they are enacted, and they're being made up by the players who are going to end up playing the game here. It, it, it's remarkable to watch. Uh, from this distance of ours up in Canada, uh, that this is supposedly the greatest democracy on earth, going through all these convulsions over this. And the, the issue of fairness has long ago been overtaken by extreme partisanship and straight-up irrationality at times. It, it, it's quite distressing. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, obviously uh, holding back. What's her next, what's her next move? How, what, what's her next hand? Well, that's a great question. I, mean, I suspect her next hand is to establish the most favorable conditions for passing these impeachment uh, indictments over to the Senate. Uh, she wants to get something out of these Senate proceedings that they couldn't get in the House of Representatives. So, you know, uh, uh, a subpoena for a Rudy Giuliani, a John Bolton, a Mike Pompeo, maybe Mike, uh, Mike Pence, something more than they could get uh, in the House where they control the Senate. So how can gonna, they How can they get any of that, though, without the other side saying, okay, we want Biden and his son up here? I, I mean, again, it seems tit for tat. 
that, that it's that may be the case. Yeah. You know, if the Democrats feel confident that they can extract more out of uh, a Giuliani than the Republicans can extract out of a Hunter Biden, then it may be worth doing so. Wow, and wouldn't that, that wouldn't that be something? That then set up the TV trays. We're going to be here for a while. Oh my goodness, this is the greatest show on earth right now, <laughs> uh, and it's being made up as we go along, right? All within the context of a 2020 election. I mean, let, let's also remember that you know if we cast our vision forward two or three months, February, early February, will be the Super Tuesday for the Democratic primaries, where wow. we're going to get a much stronger sense of who is going to be the Democratic presidential candidate. That's going to come right on the heels of the Senate, uh, the Senate trial for, over impeachment. If, say, something extraordinarily damaging comes out with, with regards to Biden or Trump, it's going to have an enormous effect on the way uh, the Democratic candidacy uh, uh, campaign is going to play out only, you know, eight weeks from now. Uh, I'll ask you, because I've asked pretty much every other policy we've ever had on this show, dating back to the election, mm-hmm. um, uh, many never saw this coming, uh, still surprised that it did happen. Uh, many say the Democrats still don't understand why their candidate didn't win. Uh, that being said, is this the new normal, or will the pendulum swing back? Does the future politician look more like a Donald Trump, or uh, will we see something else emerge out of this? No, I think a future politician is is not going to look like Donald Trump because Donald Trump is is a, a, a unique creature. Like he is, he is they broke the mold. <laughs> they yeah, they broke the mold when they made him. They kind of kept something similar for or, or, or maybe they just smashed it on the floor. Who knows I what mean, happened? He, he, you know, he's one of a kind. He's got a lot of imitators over in Europe, uh, but you know, Donald Trump is a unique character in just how shameless he is, right? And it's been very effective for him throughout his career. He just plows through uh, every single barrier in his way and seems to be impervious to embarrassment. I don't think most other human beings are like that. Right? Even the most craven of politicians at some point are likely to run up against the limits of what their own you know, personal dignity can handle. Are you concerned he's creating more, though? Making yes, it I, okay for that behavior? Oh, yeah. He's absolutely given everybody permission to behave badly. Yeah. Uh, and even worse, it works. Right? So this is really quite damaging to uh, you know to a democratic society. Right? Like when you think about it, if you go back to the political philosophers two three hundred years ago, they've all rooted their ideas about liberalism and democracy in the idea that people are reasonable and rational. Mm. Right? What happens when our society becomes governed by irrationality, unreasonableness, and worse, you know, force? The whole project of a liberal democratic society starts to come undone. That is really scary, and it seems to be okay with a lot of the electorate. Right? You know, you mentioned you know divisions around the family dinner table. I I have conversations with my family members, and I'm appalled by the kind of positions that they take. (laughs) And I, you know, I can barely eat my turkey at the end of the day. It's remarkable. Uh, your thoughts on Donald Trump's reaction to impeachment, because it always seems, and as I look back at this, and again, something that we've been saying since the beginning, uh, a lot of these problems are self-inflicted. He just takes out a gun and blows off another toe. Yep, uh, absolutely. Do you think there's any chance, you know, and we're seeing him come unravel with impeachment, my goodness, his performance at the rally last night and what he said about uh, a past senator, I believe, was just um, unbelievable. Um, do, do you think he'll flame out before this gets to its conclusion? No, I don't think he's going to flame out. 
I mean, I think he's fighting, he, you know, he's fighting for his ego and for the legacy of his ego, right? And he has demonstrated a remarkable, you know, endurance in these kinds of fights. Like, he gets off on these things in ways that other people do not. Yeah, it's an so adrenaline he, you know, thing for him, yeah. Yeah, and he's, he's going to the mattresses on this thing. And, you know, he, you know, I don't like the fact that he's saying war, that he's, he's you know, making reference to these kinds of extreme social acts. But, man, he is right. Like, he is going to war against his political opponents, and he is going to crank up the volume as loud as possible. I don't think he's going to flame out me. I think the only thing that is going to finally remove him from the White House is uh, either he loses next November or he wins next November and he takes another four years. So you don't think he, uh, his own worst enemy, he will, he will be uh, the author of his own demise? It, we've been saying that over and over again. I know. <laughs> the, the, the needle doesn't move, right? His yeah. supporters still support him hardcore. And though that sliver of moderates, somewhere in between the haters and the lovers, uh, don't seem to be racing headlong towards the Democratic side of things. Now, what is interesting is that a small majority of the American population supports the impeachment proceedings, which is quite remarkable, hmm. right? and, 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 which is a very interesting signal. Now, uh, he can live with that, provided that a good chunk of those people don't go to the polls next November. Hmm. Right? So you can, we can anticipate him and the Republican Party doing their utmost to kind of suppress voter uh, turnout. How is this? What's going to happen over the holidays for all of this? I mean, is this all on hold until January now? Oh, for crying out loud, no, not at all. Right? You you know this better than everybody else that the news cycle is you know thirty minutes long at this point. He's not going to stop tweeting. You know, events are not going to stop unfolding. So while you know the the House of Representatives may go into a, a break and may not appear on television, you know that is going to be out there and there is this looming thing that is hanging over the United States and every single family dinner table between now and January when the trial starts. Uh, this almost sounds like one of those uh, Home Alone movies or a Christmas movie in the making right here. Uh, Aaron Edinger has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. Aaron, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.